just a second. So last week that we studied, we were in Mark chapter 5, and we studied Mark chapter 5 as Jesus ministered to three different people with three completely different needs. Um, And he had traveled there overnight, he had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and uh, on the way he actually had quite a bit of difficulty. Seems like in the middle of the night they had this big storm swell up, and in the midst of that storm he had his disciples with him and he was sleeping in the boat. And they woke him up, which is kind of a bummer because he's probably getting his first nap for a long time. And they woke him up and they said, Lord, do you not see that we're perishing? And so as, as he wakes up, he doesn't do what you and I would do. He didn't look at him and he wasn't all surly and say, hey, why'd you wake me up? He, he just quietly speaks to the storm. He says, peace, be still. And he stilled the storm. Well, through that trip across the Sea of Galilee, around six miles, he headed to the other side to a region of the Gadarenes and he met this man who was dwelling by himself amongst the tombs. He was cutting himself and he was crying out day and night. So he was always crying out. And so because of that, he, uh, Jesus shows up and this man comes down to him and he casts out the demons. And the demons actually converse with Jesus. And they say, can we just, you know, don't send us out of the country. We send us into that herd of swine over there. So he, he does and the herd of swine immediately when possessed by the demons, runs to their destruction into the ocean, or to the sea. In the meantime, he left that man, but he left him clothed. You see, the people in that region saw what he did, and yet, because he had destroyed their pig crop, they didn't want him there anymore. They didn't, want, they didn't care what good works he had done. All they knew is they, he had destroyed their livelihood. So they said, Jesus, please leave our country. And that's a dangerous spot for any country, any household to be. If you're saying, leave our country, leave our area, uh, thanks for doing what you did, but we don't want all of what you do. And so he sent him out. And as he sent him out, the man who had been healed of demon possession said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you take me with you? These people don't like me. They, don't like, they didn't like me before and they still don't like me. Can you please take me with you? And he said, no, I want you to stay here. I want you to go to your family, go to your household. And show them that you're in, your, you're in a sound mind. You're clothed now. I didn't show you a picture last week. I forgot to put it in the slideshow. Um, you're probably happy about it because it was a picture of Jesus ministering to this man. And he came up to him and kneeled down. It's kind of a painting of the scene. And he's naked. He's not in his right mind and he doesn't have his clothes on. He, you know, you just see the back. So, but I didn't want to stumble anybody with that. Um, anyway, he ministers to this man and, and he wants to go with him. He says, no. Uh, why don't you stay here? And he leaves him this region called Decapolis, which means ten cities. And he leaves him there as a testimony to what God can do when he touches a man's life. And because of that, that man became the seed that God used to plant and to show the gospel to the rest of that region. And later on in the gospel, I believe that there's actually a testimony because he goes back to that region and you see the results. So... Then he heads back across the Sea of Galilee. It looks like the only reason he crossed was to go and see this man. He crosses back over and he, he comes into contact with Jairus, uh, leader of the synagogue. And as he's there, uh, Jesus actually um, is requested by this leader of the synagogue who was before completely against him. He said, can you come to my house? My daughter of 12 years is dying. And so while he's on the way, he meets up with this woman who has had a blood hemorrhage, internal bleeding for 12 years. And she doesn't say anything to him. She says, I've seen what he's done. Maybe if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. 
and, and she is healed. She's made completely whole. Not only is the, the source of her um, hemorrhage, not only is it healed, but also the blood that had you know, been bleeding from her was also dried up, and she knew that instantly. She was healed, made completely whole. So Jesus has ministered, and each time he touches alive, there's, a, uh, there's not only a tangible result, but there's also a heart change. They're, hum- they're humbled in his sight, and they also want to turn around and tell people. And he even told Jairus, after he healed his daughter that was dying, or had died, they thought they had, that he had died, and then Jesus said, she's only sleeping, picked her up and said, daughter, arise. And she was brought back to life. But I've mentioned before, you know, Jesus ended that chapter, or he ended that circumstance by saying, don't tell anybody. Now, I always see that, and I'm like, why not? Why wouldn't they want to tell? They, they do want to tell somebody, but Jesus commands them. He says, don't tell anyone. And I've mentioned this before. This is why he told them not to tell anybody. He was trying to avoid the notion that he was just a miracle worker. God is not just a miracle worker. That's the thing that we notice. That's the thing that we want him to do oftentimes. And sometimes he does. But the problem with that is that we start to worship the miracles and not so much the one who does them. Number two, he wanted to avoid undue publicity, which would hinder his mobility. If all of a sudden everybody knew that he had done this, I mean, who wouldn't throng or press in on him? And uh, he also still had a ministry to his specific disciples that were around him. He, had, he can only minister to so many people. He's only one man, right? And so he needs to be able to do that. Number three, he, to avoid the mistaken notion of the type of Messiah that he came to be. Remember that Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says that he came to suffer and to serve and to sacrifice himself, not simply just to display his power. No doubt, you know, if God wanted to just reach us and show us his power, he could just put a megaphone on the moon. He could just put a loudspeaker down the street and say, you know, repent, you know, but he doesn't. He uses you and I to go and minister to people individually just like he did. Another thing is he, he did it in, or, in order to avoid premature death that increased popularity could bring. You know, Jesus did come and he knew when he came that he came to, to give his life as a ransom for many, but it was not yet his time and, and everything in its timing. He was to wait. He was to wait to that spot where he would become known to all. But the problem is, is when he come, becomes known to all, he's no longer able to, able to minister. He has to head to Jerusalem and ultimately get wrongfully accused and, and given up by Judas, the traitor, in order to uh, be killed for our iniquities, bruised for, for our punishment in our place. So verse 1 of chapter 6 is where we'll start tonight. It says, uh, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Verse 4, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives and his own household. Now he, who, excuse me, now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. 
So verse 1 says that he came to his own country. Now, he wasn't born in this country, but this is the country that he was raised in. It was Nazareth. So the actual name of Jesus' own country or his hometown, his stomping grounds as we would call it, is Nazareth. Jesus is many times referred to in the gospel as Jesus of Nazareth. We saw that in the last chapter. And so Jesus gets home. He lays low a couple of days, no doubt spending some time with his disciples. But on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, he did this in many of the different... Every town he went to, the first thing he did was he went to the synagogue. You see this also in his followers. If you read the book of Acts, every time Paul shows up to any of the towns he's going to, first thing he does is he goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He goes to the synagogue where they had the Old Testament prophecy because they had a base with which to talk about the fact that there's this sin problem you have to deal with. See, the law didn't save. All that the law did was it was a tutor that would lead us to Jesus Christ, showing us that we didn't measure up to God's standard. So before we go any further, I think it's important, though, to notice that the last time that Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth, it didn't go so well for him. So if you'll do me a favor, please turn your uh, Bibles to you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we read this. Uh, probably a month or two ago, we, we went over this passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 30. So in Luke chapter 4, this is the last time he was there. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So he quotes from Isaiah there as he's reading. And verse 20 says, Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue fixed on him, were fixed on him, and he began to say that to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say to this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. So we stop there, then go down to verse 28. And it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They were upset, and they rose up, and they thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So the last time he was in Nazareth, not only did he stand up and teach in the synagogue, he, he just practically, he just stood up and he read the scripture that they gave him. He read from Isaiah and he told them, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Basically saying, I'm here. This is me. This is what it was speaking of. So it was from that day forward that he spent the majority of his time and his efforts in Capernaum. Remember, he just told them in Luke, he said, you're going to say, why don't you do the works here that I did in Capernaum? Well, we know from the scripture we read in Mark chapter 6 today that he couldn't do any work because they didn't believe that he was who he said he was. And so 
Today's passage in Mark 6 is the first time that Jesus has returned to Nazareth and their response to Jesus is still the same. Although it's been over a year, he's been gone for a year, he comes back and they have the same question for him. Who gives you this authority? It's what they asked him. Aren't you just the carpenter's son? Aren't you Joseph's son? Now Mark's rendition here, we read that you know, they, they say, aren't you the son of Mary? Aren't you the carpenter? And then they list all his brothers, and then they say, and here's your sisters here. Many uh, think that possibly what had happened is between this time and that year that he was gone, that Joseph had actually passed away. And we don't have anything in Scripture that says that, but that's kind of one of the things that scholars seem to think. But um, nonetheless, I love how this passage shows that his love for those who hate him. Remember, Jesus tells us to bless those who spitefully use us and persecute us. Those who hate us, bless them. And we're like, okay, that that sounds good on paper, but how do you live that out? Well, Jesus didn't just say it. He had already done it. Here he came back to the people that tried to push him off a cliff, and he came to them one more time before he went to the cross. He showed up in his own hometown. He said, I love you guys enough. I'm I'm coming again. And he came and he taught in the synagogue. And they, they again asked the question. They couldn't get over the fact that they knew where he grew up. They couldn't get over the fact that they knew him. They knew his brothers. You know, uh, actually, I, w- I thought it was it was funny because we we have this tendency to to know that God's all powerful, that He's sovereign, and that He's able to do these mighty works. But we have this tendency to still kind of put Him in a box. Like, well, I've seen God do this, so I know He can do it. But He says He can do this, but I've never seen it, so I'm I'm not going to pray that way. But what's interesting about him going back to his family and to the people that he loved the most, the, the people that had tried to kill him, is that it shows that he doesn't put people in the unreachable box. We were in a prayer meeting this morning at 7.30, and I love what this one woman prayed. Um, she prayed, Lord, we put people in a box and label them unreachable, but you do not. Lord, forgive me for putting people in a box labeled unreachable. And I have to confess to you guys, I'm, I'm guilty of that same sin. I, I think, Lord, I, I really wish that you could save this person and that, and that they would come to know you and that you would just bless them, bless their socks off. But in my heart of hearts, I, I go, Lord, I don't think you can do it. I mean, they, they just seem too far gone. And then he reminds me, hey, I got you. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, Lord, forgive me for that. That's that sin of unbelief that causes him to not be able to work the way that he would desire to work. You know, and that's what happened in this town. Because they were so used to who he was, and they knew the names of his brothers and sisters, and they, and they knew his mom, and they knew his dad, and that he was just a carpenter, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And so, they, because they knew his name, and they had seen him around town, they assumed that they knew him. We often do that. We're in the day that you know you can look up anybody on Facebook, stalk them, and find out a little bit about them, and assume that you know them. But the reality is, is that words on a page, first of all, are often a bunch of lies anyway, because we like to put our best foot forward on Facebook or or on any of those kinds of things. Uh, but the other side of it is, is we don't we we can't even relate to where they live, to what they do with their time, to what kind of music they like. You can kind of get glimpses, but even the people you hang out with the most. I think about my wife. I hang out with her all the time, but I really still don't completely know her, and I'll spend my entire life trying to get to know her. So we put those people in a box, and they put Jesus in a box. They said, you know, 
Jesus is somebody that we know who he is, therefore he can't be the Son of God. He can't be the Messiah. But notice Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Familiarity breeds contempt. Don't ever let yourself get so used to going to Bible studies or so used to reading the Bible or spending time with Christians that you think that you have this handle, this grip on who Jesus is. If you're not careful, you'll start to make assumptions about Jesus that aren't true. It happens all the time in the church. People start saying things about God. It's like, okay, that sounds good, but it's not in the Bible. And so Jesus gives us this very specific word about who he is. So that's why I continue to say each week, I'm sure I, I say this till the cats come home, the will of God 101 is to first know Jesus. Know him personally. And I mean that by spending time through listening to him while you read his, his word. We have, we're so fortunate. We don't, maybe you're not a reader and you're like, I wish I could just listen to that thing on a recording. Go online. There's plenty of places where you can listen to God's word being read through. Some of them even have like lightning and thunder in the background. And some of them have different voices for the ladies and the guys. It's pretty neat, you know, and it might even, you know, you might have read it through it several times. You, you know, you just need a new, fresh way to do it. That's a good way to do it. I do it all the time, especially if I get up late. I mean, I know you guys don't do this, but when I get up late, sometimes I'm like, I still want to get some, I want to get God's word. I want to get my daily bread so I can get going. And so I'll take my phone and I'll push play while I'm in the shower or while I'm brushing my teeth or whatever I'm doing. I can listen to that and I can still get my chores done, you know, so the house isn't a mess when Kelly gets home. But the other side of it is we need to spend time listening to him as well, because I think oftentimes we have this big list of what we want to tell God, but we also need to listen. And one of the ways we can do that is by praying. You can have this time of prayer where you can, you know, adore the Lord and then you can confess to him and and you can do all those things and you can also just say Lord I have this little thing about you that I really don't understand it says it in your word but please give me some more understanding in this because I don't know and it, the cool thing is is sometimes you'll get extended amounts of time where you won't know what to pray and God will speak to you in that time if you'll just let him and you'll be still um, other ways that you can get to know him is you can spend time with other believers it's, it's completely important. It's one of the biggest things you can do is be around other believers and you can converse with them about maybe what God's showing them or what you're, you know, God's showing you and you can share that with them and they can go, hey, that, that sounds neat, but it's wrong. Or they can go, hey, praise the Lord, I just learned that a couple days ago. That's neat. God's been showing me that too. And, and always, you know, when you're fellowshipping, there's always the opportunity for somebody to have a wrong idea about who God is. But what's cool about that is there might be somebody that you're talking to and you're like, hey, I think this about God. And they're like, well, if you and they can give you a passage and go, yeah, that's kind of true. But with this little spin on it and they can give you the verse, chapter and verse, you can go home and pray over it and say, Lord, I thought this about you. And he asked, change your heart and change my heart about that, you know. So iron sharpens iron, I guess, is my main point. And then when you meet folks who claim to be disciples of Jesus, make sure you're willing to hear them. Maybe there's somebody that you knew in high school. Maybe there's some, you know, there's lots of guys that I knew in high school that if I told them I was teaching the Bible to people every week, they'd be like, what? I, you weren't even close to a Christian when you were in high school. And so a lot of them probably wouldn't listen to me. Or imagine this, my own parents. They, they've got that syndrome where they used to change my diapers and so I can't teach them anything. Imagine that. 
It doesn't mean that I don't have anything to teach them, but a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own household, his own family. But the cool thing is, is that that doesn't mean that God can't reach them. It just means they may not listen to me. So I can pray that the Lord of the harvest would send somebody else, workers, to go out and, and share the gospel with them. Maybe they'll hear them. But in the context of this passage, for these people Jesus lived around, they had no dirt on him. He's not like us. He doesn't have the old high school stories. He's perfect. But they still found excuses to say, I know where he's from. I know who he is. So if Jesus experienced it, know that you and I can experience it because we're not perfect like he was, like he is. Every person that truly knows Jesus Christ has a past and has sinned, and so people will have all kinds of reasons to not believe that God has changed you or that he can use you. But the cool thing is that Jesus can relate with that. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you've been walking with him for a long time or a short time, it doesn't matter. There will be people that you see every day. There will be people that you grew up in the same house with, and they will not believe that God has changed you. But Jesus, like I said, repeating myself, that he, he can relate with that. His own family didn't believe that he was the Son of God. Does that make him that he wasn't the Son of God? No. But the cool thing is is that uh, I think it was James. Was, wasn't James the leader of the Jerusalem church? He, he was Jesus' half-brother. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God until Jesus died and then rose again. And all the things that he had shared with James amongst his, uh, along his life, when Jesus died and then he was resurrected, he was reminded of all those things. So though you don't think that your family is listening, or maybe your coworkers, or maybe the people you went to high school with are listening, they're going to watch your life and they're going to put it underneath a magnifying glass, and they're going to measure what you say with what you do. And, and many times, whether you see it or not, God will use the, that testimony to reach them. But notice also the result of the people rejecting Jesus in their town in verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Basically because no one in that town believed on him, there were no people coming to be ministered to, and there were, because of unbelief, there were no people even bringing in anyone to Jesus to be healed or ministered to. They did, however, because, they did, however, because of their unbelief, uh, cause Jesus to do something that he is only mentioned doing twice in the gospel, in the four gospel accounts. Jesus marveled. And it's a small phrase, but it's a huge thing. To make God himself marvel to make him in awe, to make him admire you is a cool thing. But he's in awe of, he's admiring the fact that they didn't believe. He marveled because of their unbelief. Uh, marveled there, I have it for you. It means to wonder, uh, by implication to admire, or to hold in admiration. He admired the fact that they didn't believe. The only other time that scripture says that Jesus marveled was in Matthew chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and I will heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority 
having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, I say, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west. They'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will not, excuse me, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So when Jesus is recorded as having marveled once is when a Jewish person, one of the people from his chosen people, the the group there in his hometown, question him as to where he gets his authority, and they do not believe. And the other time is when a Roman centurion, somebody that wasn't from the nation of Israel, someone that didn't have the Old Testament, he wasn't even from their people, he recognized that Jesus could heal his servant without even coming to his house because, number one, he recognized that Jesus was a man with authority. He saw that he had some sort of power and he he had authority over other people because he himself was a man under authority. Because he was surrendered to the Roman leader, because of that, all the men that he spoke to recognized that he followed Caesar and so they all listened to him. Well, what he recognized about Jesus was not that he had power. He recognized that Jesus was a man under authority. He followed the authority of someone greater than him. He didn't look at him and see a powerful man. He saw a submissive man. And that's where Jesus' authority came from. And so recognizing that Jesus was in awe of the faith of that man who had no other reason to have any faith other than just seeing the fruit in the works of Jesus. The major theme here is found in John chapter 15, when Jesus told his disciples, says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I, did, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. You see, what you'll notice is that these people that didn't believe in the passage that we already read in Mark chapter 6, it says of them, if I can find it here, in verse 2, after he had uh, spoken and, and, and taught on the Sabbath, said, where does this man get these things and what wisdom is this which is given to him? Such mighty works are performed by his hands. They noticed and they saw the works that he did. It wasn't like they didn't get to see any of the works. They had heard the testimonies of what he had done. So their unbelief was because of hardness of heart. It wasn't because God didn't show them miracles. It wasn't because, you know, and not, not to mention the fact that their, their God had showed them when they left and crossed the Red Sea, when they got to the wilderness, 
They had crossed the red. Oftentimes people think, well, if God would just show me a miracle, then I would believe. The people that crossed the Red Sea by the hand of Moses, who had you know, lifted up his staff and the whole thing dried up and God opened up a way for them to cross on dry land, they saw that, and yet when they got to the land that God took them to in the wilderness, many of them perished because of unbelief of God to be able to sustain them in the wilderness. So you can see all the miracles in the world and still not believe. And there are many today that do that. <clears throat> so Jesus, in effect, shows them that the worst that can happen is not that he would be rejected, because that doesn't stop him from being who he is. As a matter of fact, it really proves who he is when he's rejected. But the real consequence is on those who reject him. When people reject Jesus, they aren't harming him, they're harming themselves. They're robbing themselves of the good that he desires to do in their lives. And when the people of his hometown reject him, they're rejecting God the Father, the one that they boast in, that chose them as a people and made them a nation in the first place through Abraham. So in true Jesus fashion, he uses this occasion to show his disciples that are still with him what happens sometimes when you love people and you show them their truth and they reject it. Now, now that he is led by example and gone and taught in the synagogues, even though they would reject him sometimes and accept him sometimes, he sends out his disciples to go and do the same. But this was the last time that Jesus went to Nazareth. I think it's funny, oftentimes Jesus comes into a town. Maybe somebody comes in and they, they preach and they share the gospel. Sometimes they do it out on the street. We don't see that a whole lot anymore, but I know there are men that go to big cities and they'll preach on the street corner. Not one of those where they're saying, the end is near, but they're, they're going out and they're reading scripture and they're saying, you need to repent, just like Jesus did. And many people will sit there and argue with them and they'll reject it. But we'll find here as Jesus gave uh, instruction on how to deal with people when they reject it. Verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts or money, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, Stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Jesus takes the twelve that he had previously called, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 14. If you remember, it was just a few weeks ago. It said, then he appointed twelve that they might, number one, be with him, and number two, that he might send them out to preach. So he, at this point, is sending them out to preach. It's been a while. It's been, you know, not quite a year, but it's been some time. But he had called them. He said, I'm calling you to be with me and then to send you out to preach. And they're, you know, they're probably going, okay, so when's that going to happen? Are we going now? Can we go now, Jesus? And he says, no, stay with me. And then at this time, it seems like, right after he's being opposed and rejected by his own hometown, they're going, wow, I, I don't know if I want to go. And he's saying, this is the time. This is when you need to go. And so, uh, so he, at this point, is sending them out to preach. But notice there are a few guidelines to this particular mission that he's sending them on. Now, this is a little different than later he gives a discourse on what they're supposed to do. But at this time, he's supposed to, they're supposed to, uh, number one, go in pairs. And I think God does this oftentimes. If you ever see anybody out, you know, and they go street witnessing, this should be two by two. If you're ever going to a house to minister and maybe pray with someone that's sick, 
You should always go two by two. Go with someone. Number one, for accountability. Number two, for encouragement. They could watch each other's backs. If you're ever going to witness to somebody, maybe even somebody in your family, it's always nice to have somebody that's going to speak and then somebody's going to hang, out, hang back, be there, but pray the whole time because God does amazing things through prayer. Uh, number two, they were to go with the power that he had given them over unclean spirits. It doesn't say go out there and cast out demons. It says, I'm going to give you power to go cast out demons. Talking about that authority. Power there means authority or jurisdiction. It's kind of like when a, uh, a sheriff deputizes a deputy. You know, they say, hey, I, I'm going to lay hands. It's kind of like the church laying hands on someone, but they're basically swearing them in, giving them an oath to serve and protect. But they're now officially, according to law, able to go out and withhold the laws and actually, you know, be someone that will do that. Number three, they were to take nothing except a staff, the sandals they were wearing, and the clothes on their back. So since they would not be taking extra food, extra clothes, or money, they would not be burdened with extra gear. You know, you think about that. If you travel, if you ever go anywhere, it's easier to have a a small amount of things to carry. But then the other thing is travel is easier when you carry less. And then, but it also encouraged the disciples not to trust in what they had brought with themselves, but to trust God for their food and their shelter. Where God guides, He provides. If He calls us to do something, He's going to give us something to be able to minister in the way He's sending us to do. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 through 10, um, it says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Basically, Jesus was going to use this exercise to show them that God provides for those that he calls to serve. And he does. Uh, I've heard it so many times said this way, where, where God guides, he provides. And that's why, um, you know, I've been asking you guys to pray with us. You know, we're praying that God would sell our house in Farmington. We feel called to be down here, not just to be down here on Sundays. But because we're asking you to pray for us, it's so that we can show you that, you know, God's going to confirm his call. If we're supposed to be down here, he's going to provide a house down here at the right time. Not only will he provide somebody to buy our house, but when the house sells, he's going to make sure that there's a house for us that's suitable down here. And so where God guides, he provides. Number four, they were to stay with anyone who would receive them and their message, but depart from those who would not receive them or their message. He didn't say beg people to believe the gospel. He said, go and tell the world. Tell everybody that you see, and if they don't receive it, shake the dust off your feet and walk off. It's not up to us whether or not people receive it. You remember the story of the, the, when Jesus took his disciples and he fed the 5,000. He, he broke the bread, he multiplied it in the fish, and he had them handed out. The, there was 12 baskets, and he had 12 men handing out the food. He never went and handed out the food himself. Jesus didn't have a basket. He broke the bread, he provided it, and then he sent out the 12 to hand it out to the, fi- the crowd of 5,000. It was really it was more because they would only count the men. But when they went out to feed the 5,000, you'll notice that there was plenty for everyone. I forgot what my point was. How are you guys supposed to get the point if I don't remember? <laughs> but it wasn't up to them to, pro- to make the bread. It was up to them to take the bread that Jesus had given them and go and hand it out. Now, Surely there weren't anybody in the crowd that said, no, I don't want any bread, but there might have been. But they weren't supposed to force feed it. They were just supposed to hand it out to everybody that wanted it. And so in the same way, we don't, we're not supposed to go and preach the gospel to the people that are like, no, I don't want to hear it. 
I mean, there are people that don't want to hear the gospel, believe it or not. But the cool thing is, is that when we go out and tell someone, hey, I know Jesus Christ and I'd like you to know him too. If they reject it, it's not on us. We've already accepted him. It's on the Lord. And the Lord's okay with that. He died that anybody that would want to have everlasting life in him could have it. And if they choose not to accept it, he doesn't force himself on us. He wants us to have free choice. So they were to stay with anyone who would receive them, but depart from those who did not. And according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 6, they were only to go to the lost sheep of Israel. At this point, the gospel was the only being shared with the Jewish people. And God had his reasons for that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 6 says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is important to know because at this point Jesus is sending his disciples only to the Jews. And uh, his message is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that people should repent. Then they can go to those that will hear. Jesus primarily focused his ministry on the Jews. But after his resurrection is when he sends them, he commanded his disciples to take the good news to all the world. And that being said, when Jesus says in Mark chapter 6 verse 11... Assuredly, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's because Jesus himself gave them the first priority when it came to sending the message of salvation through the disciples while he himself walked amongst them. They were accountable to what they had heard, even if they didn't receive it. To whom much is given, much is required. The Israelites were given the Old Testament law and the prophets, which all spoke of Jesus Christ. So when they reject the Messiah that they were told ahead of time would come, they are accountable to having heard more truth than any other nation in the world. Verse 12, and we'll close. So they went out and they preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. So as Jesus sent them, they went out and did what they were sent to do the way they were sent to do it. He didn't just say, go share the gospel. He had, he had a way that he wanted them to do it. And Jesus gave them the authority that they would need so they were able to do all the works that he had done. Disciples of Jesus Christ are able to do what Jesus Christ does. Not because of anything in us, but because he empowers us to be instruments in his hands. We're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and because of that, we're called to be with him, And we're called to be, at the right time, sent by Him to people in order to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. There will will be many who have become all too familiar with the name of Jesus. And because of that, they won't hear it. They've heard it all before, and so they're not ready to receive anything new. And they'll have all kinds of excuses for why they do not follow Him. Many will say that He was only a man, He was a good teacher, and therefore He was not the Son of God. Uh, I say that if they say that, then they, you know, they're saying a good man lies because he said he was the Son of God. He was pretty blatant about that. Uh, many will say that they were raised in church and have always gone and that they are a Christian. We become so familiar with hearing the name of Jesus, but do we really know Jesus personally? Maybe it's time to stop remembering back to what God did back then and really start to ask, Lord, what are you doing now? What are you desiring to use me for? And what in specific do you want me to do in order to be a part of your plan for me today? For the disciples, they had been with him over a year, and now he was calling them to do something bigger. 
He called them to go out and be like Christ, which is really what Christian means in the first place, Christ-like. He said to them, remember what I did when I first met you. Go and tell others and reveal the truth to them. Pray for and anoint those who are sick so they may be healed. Cast out demons, set free the oppressed like I did for the the demon-possessed man. Preach that the kingdom of God is near and that repentance is the first step to eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say to you guys, you know, that that's what you and I are called to do today. What he's just told his disciples to do. And, uh, and it won't always be easy, but the cool thing is, is it's not about being easy. It's just about doing what our Lord has taught us to do. Doing what he did. Trying to identify with him. And the cool thing is, is that I don't know anybody here that knows Jesus Christ that didn't have somebody personally share it with them. Whether it was personally or whether it was somebody talking to him at work or whether it was on the radio. Lots of people get saved by listening to the radio. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. But all we know is we're supposed to go out and spread seed. So tonight we're going to take communion. And uh, the worship team is going to come up here. Uh, But communion is a time to remember what God has done for us. We know that he shed his blood. We know that he gave his body in place of ours. Uh, but I wa- what I want you to do is, uh, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, please let the uh, the plate pass when the the blood or, or excuse me the bread and the the wine come by and just grape juice, and uh, because communion is, is basically it's for believers, and if you're not a believer but the Lord is showing that you that you need to you know become one that you're seeing that you have this sin problem you need Him to deal with it then you know it's just as easy as asking Him to. Lord, I want you to save me. I want to know your son. And so if that's what God's showing you you need to do, just, just pray that. And then take communion freely and joy. And, uh, but now we're going to do a song of worship and they'll pass out to me.